welcome back to another episode of Confessions of a Krabby Christian, a Misfit Media Network production. I am your host and resident Krabby Christian, Blake, and every week I get to have the coolest conversations with incredible people about all the things most Christians are still not sure we're allowed to talk about. So if you've been looking for a place to land with all your crap and for someone to just be honest about what it looks like to walk through this Christian life, well, you've come to the right place. Pull up a seat, pop in your headphones and tune out your kids and come hang out with me and a guest for the authentic conversations that you have been looking for. Hey, Preston, welcome to Confessions of a Crappy Christian. I am so excited about this conversation. Thanks for having me on, Blake. This is going to be amazing. We're just going <laughs> to jump right in because that's kind of what I do. I used to be a podcaster that was like, let's like have a nice introduction. And I'm like, let's get let's get to it. Let's yeah, talk about it. That's the way to do it. You do have a book coming out that this episode is coming out in conjunction with. And we're going to cover some of those topics and beyond. But to get us started out the gate, this is not your first book by any stretch of the imagination, but tell us about this one that you've got coming out. So it actually already came out August 1st. It's called, Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage? 21 Conversations from a Historically Christian View. I should know the subtitle of my own book. I have written a few books on sexuality and gender questions. And it's the first question I always get, like, how's this one different? Why another book? And I, you know, I guess the best way to put it is my first book on the topic was 2015. Since then, I mean, gosh, I've done a ton of speaking on it, uh, more writing, answering questions, answering questions, answering more questions. So whenever I go speak, I always say let, I need to have a Q&A too. I don't want to just be the talking head up here. I actually want to hear pushback. I want to hear questions people have. And so basically, you know, that's been the last seven, eight years of my life. So this book is basically me kind of taking really the top yeah, 21 pushbacks I often get when I talk about traditional marriage and responding to those. And one of the things I'm most excited, you know, we talked offline and yeah. one of the things I've learned over the years is that how we believe is almost as important as what we believe. Yes. Uh, not at all to demand, hopefully people, most people get what I'm saying, you know, yeah. but I'm not, not downplaying the content of what we believe, but I'm elevating how important it is to go about these contentious conversations in a way that reflects, reflects Christ. I mean, for lack yeah. of better terms, um, that exemplifies both truth and grace. So the first chapter of the book is really kind of laying the groundwork of how, how do we even have a conversation around this really contentious question about the definition of marriage. So yeah, that's, that's what the book's all about. Yeah. And I, we're going to jump into like how we have these conversations, but I'm really intrigued. Like, how did you get into these, like this kind of being the area of your focus? Because, and especially like 2015 to now things have changed so much in this conversation as well. I basically hate myself and decided to, uh, <laughs> what's, the, what's the way I can make the most amount of people across the political spectrum angry, you know? Yeah, pretty I, much. I fell... <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I'll get like back-to-back -back emails, which I don't do this much anymore, but I said something that I didn't think was that provocative on Twitter, but it ha happened to be something about politics and political positions. And I got equal, uh -huh. equal responses. People saying, oh, you're just a flaming liberal and you don't even know. And other people, you're so conservative. Like this is back-to-back -back people tell me where I'm at on the political. And they were polar opposites. And I was like, this is so fun. Which I will say, I think that's like my favorite place to be. <laughs> Is like when I put something out, I know it's going to piss everybody off in some form or fashion. And it's just like too conservative for conservatives. Yeah. Or too conservative for progressives, too progressive for conservatives. 
I love it. That's great. That's what I've, I've caught that about you. That's why I was excited about this podcast. I fell into this conversation. I really did. I mean, as uh, I was, you know, teaching at a Bible college, my main passion is theology. Like I, I actually yeah. love scholarship. I love reading and writing books that the average person can understand. Like I just, I love that world. So I began kind of a personal research project on what does the Bible say about at that mm-hmm. time, you know, I framed it as like homosexuality or something. And the way I like to approach these topics is I know, you know, I admit here's what I grew up believing and I do my best to set that aside and try to read the Bible as freshly as I can and just go where the text leads. Mm-hmm. And I've done that with other doctrines and it, and I, it happened to led me away from what I used to believe, you know? Yeah. So I made a lot of people nervous when I said, I'm going to do that with homosexuality. And people are like, we need to know where you stand. I'm like, I- I'm halfway through Genesis. I'll let you know when I get through the Bible. And, and yeah. it's fascinating that it made, quote unquote, biblical Christians extremely nervous when I told them I was studying the Bible and going where the text leads. Like that actually freaked a lot of people out. How sad is that? They would be more satisfied and just give me your stance and make mm-hmm. sure it's the same as mine. So that's how I fell into it as a theological journey. I did end up embracing very passionately God's the t- traditional view of marriage. Um, yep. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Cause I think some people can see, like, I think I can see where like, especially living in the like deconstructionist days, mm-hmm. right. Which like, I think deconstruction is a good thing. Like deconstruct what you were taught, reconstruct Holy. on like yes. the foundation of scripture, which is exactly what you did. And you came to like this, this result of believing what scripture says, but so many people do it and then try to just make the Bible say whatever makes them comfortable. Right. And it's a temptation. We all face that temptation. You know, whenever I talk about being like unbiased, I'm I'm not claiming that I have the view from nowhere and have no, but I do think we can be honest with our biases, honest with our baggage, honest with the fact that, you know, I am a a married man living in, you know, the West in America and I have certain lenses on. Like admitting that is what we should do, not pretend like those don't exist. So, yeah. So I did, I landed on, you know, I do think the Bible says marriage is between a man and a woman. I do think there were some unforeseen counter arguments to that view that I didn't grow up hearing. That's where I had to, I had to work through that. You know, it took me two or three years to really feel like confident in that theological position Yeah, because there was all these arguments, counter arguments that I didn't grow up hearing in church. So I had to really work through them. I didn't want to just say, well, that's wrong. And I need to show why I'm like, right. Let me take what they're saying and and examine it, you know? So the theological journey took a bit, but more than that, not more than that, but alongside that, I refuse to do theology from a distance. Like, even though I'm a theologian, like I I actually like people. (laughs) (laughs) Most days I like people. I, I think that theology needs to be embodied. It needs to be fleshed out. It needs to be in the real life of people. So I Early in my journey, I just got to know tons of LGBT people and just said, I just want to hear your story. Yeah. And that absolutely, Blake, that absolutely wrecked me. Like I heard so many stories from people raised in the church, utterly dehumanized, best case scenario, maybe just ignored and silenced and seen as non-existent. Like that's like the best case scenario. Yeah. Worst case was some horror stories of just spiritual, even physical and even sexual abuse, mm-hmm. the shaming, the, I would say probably the the most widespread problem in the evangelical church along these relational lines is unintentional, shameful things yeah. that the church has said. You know, I haven't traveled around. I think a lot of Christian leaders, they get a bad rap these days, but a lot of well-intended people, they are trying to love people and love God the best they can. But we do so many things 
that are well-intended, but that can absolutely produce shame. Absolutely. And that's prevalent in like, look at purity culture. I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah. Like you have these entire generations of millennials Mm -hmm. that like are still in their thirties, figuring out how to be like, how to have sex drives and like have healthy sexual relationships with people that they've been with for like 15 years. And that's a result of like, I do look back and see like our youth pastors really were just trying to make sure we weren't sleeping around and like making bad choices. But the way that they like the way that it ended up getting communicated imparted a lot of shame. Yeah. Yeah. Someone was telling me about this, this, this exercise where they would put two different colors of clay. Oh yeah. And then when you blend it together, it turns into like brown clay. Oh yeah. And it's like, you're forever like this brown lump of clay. My daughter was asking me about that. She's like, wait a minute. Can Jesus not overcome? Can he not redeem this kind of sin? <laughs> well, and so then like it does, it like bleeds into the rest of your theology. Like it's this one little belief system. The big one that our church did was like the used car metaphor. Like oh, somebody drives a car so many times and like nobody's gonna want to drive the car. Like you're like 14 like, sitting in this auditorium, you know? So like, and that does bleed into your other theology. So yeah to that point like that yes and like i think one thing i am proud of christians for right now is like we're willing to be self-reflective yeah not across the board but a lot of you're seeing a lot of christian conversations going yeah no that wasn't our best work right right oh like yeah let's move away from that you know and so like that's how we grow and change Yeah. yeah but being able to know people and just like acknowledge that that pain and that shame and that experience is real mm-hmm. and not reflective of God. Right. Right. That that came from human. Right. A misuse of maybe the Bible, misuse of the gospel. And, and again, out of ignorance. And I, I mean, yeah. ignorance in the neutral way of just, we just haven't been talking about this. We've been relying on Fox News or whatever, <laughs> pick your favorite, whatever, to kind of educate us on <laughs> yeah. these com- complex ethical questions. And expecting them to speak from like a Christian viewpoint and they're not going to right. because they're of the world. Right. And right. so you open the book talking about how to have these conversations. And when I started reading your book, I was, a, I was a little like, Oh, is he going to tell us like not to tell the truth? Like, is he going to tell us like, <laughs> no, just like tell people what they need to hear. And that's not at all. Yeah. Like you, I love how much you pull Paul into it that like mm-hmm. boldness and truth, but also Paul was strategic and Paul knew yes. his audience every single time he was talking to people. Yes. And so many of the problems that we're having in these conversations are because Christians aren't like just slowing down mm-hmm. and having an intentional conversation. Yeah. 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 The motivation. And I guess, you know, people have to, well, you know, the, the chapter is available for free on my, on my website. So okay. on uh, theology if they were like, what are you guys talking about? They can go there and, get that chapter for free. Yeah. I believe it's still up there. But yeah, you know, I do talk about, you know, being a curious listener, you know, like if you're in a, if you're in a uh, conversation, it could be about politics. It could be about same sex marriage, whatever, but whether you get this volatile disagreement here, can you be genuinely interested in their viewpoint? Mm-hmm. And people right there are like, well, wait a minute, you're giving ground. Like, well, no, wait, <laughs> let me ask you a question. Do you want them to be genuinely interested in your viewpoint? Right. Well, yeah, because I have the truth. Okay. They think they do too. So what makes you think they're going to be curious about your viewpoint 
your viewpoint, if you don't demonstrate that curiosity towards them, curiosity doesn't mean agreement. It just means no. I actually want to know what you believe because you're created in God's image. You have a brain, you're intelligent. Right. I want to understand your view before I begin to refute it. I need to know what it is you, you even believe, you know? And I wonder if it's because our own, and we're going to get into this, but I wonder if it's because our own beliefs can be so fragile yeah, and like not well-rounded and backed up that is it like, are we afraid of hearing their opinion or are we afraid mm -hmm. that we're not going to be able to defend our opinion in the face of their opinion? I think it's a lot of the latter. Yeah. <laughs> I think I even say that like when people are so confident in their viewpoint, I, it makes me wonder like, what are they compensating for? You know who else, you know, who else feels that way? Gen Z. Yeah. <laughs> like younger people, this whole like boomer Gen Xer, like I grew up, you know, the louder the preacher yelled, the more I believed him. It's the opposite now. Like if somebody's mm -hmm. so bold, so black and white, younger people, they're like, they start to get a little more suspicious, you know, like I know. he's a too, what's he compensating for, you know, but if, yeah. you, if you hold your beliefs with a level of humility, like instead of saying, you know, here's the truth, you must believe it, say like, you know what, based on my study so far, here's what I see the Bible teaching, you know, but I'm still human. I could be wrong. Like just admitting that you're human with your, as you hold your beliefs for people, my generation and older, it feels like they're giving ground. You're being weak. You're not being convicted, but that actually is more compelling for younger people. And I'll just close with this. That's my motivation in this first chapter is, is not simply being kind for kindness sake. It's, I want to embody a posture that will make my beliefs more compelling, not less, mm -hmm. more willing to be entertained rather than just dismissed right out of the gate. Yeah. So really my, in a roundabout way, my motivation is because I believe very strongly in what I believe, why I think we need to have a, a much better tone and how we go about, you know, these conversations. Yeah. And I'll say like, as someone with a platform that talks about this stuff, like sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I do backslide into like snark or oh, you're yeah. wrong. I'm right. Especially <laughs> when you're getting like a lot of negative feedback or a lot of negative pushback, it's easy to get defensive. So like, yeah. I'm not, we're not casting judgment for people who do interact that way. Mm -hmm. It's more like, maybe there's just a different way to look yeah. at it. Maybe there's a different way to have yeah. this conversation. You know what I mean? Well, even like it's, it's, oh, I, I'm glad you said that. Cause I, 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 I naturally am snarky. I'm naturally cynical. Same. I'm not like, if you looked at like the earlier drafts of my book, like I was literally violating all of my <laughs> advice. I had in the first, <laughs> thankfully I've got some really good editors around me that by draft <laughs> seven or eight, you know, I was actually a demonstrating, you know, what I was advising people to do. So yeah, there's no, there's no, I mean, I, I think it's supernatural and easy to fall into, you know, snark or want to kind of, you know, take a jab at somebody or, or say something that kind of is a little humorous and demeaning, you know, mm -hmm. that's what I fall into. Like if somebody in, in it, uh, yeah, I'll just be totally honest. Like there's some arguments that are really strong and really compelling and others are just really bad. Yeah. Oh, 100%. and the ones that are really bad. It's like, you just want to like, it's so tempting to just like, rip the clothes off this argument and say, right. like reveal it. Yeah. yeah. But that's like, not, yeah. Well, and I also think there's a way to do that. Like yes. there's a way to undress these arguments for people who are like wading into these waters, trying to understand. And they like, this is not everybody's strong suit, you know, like right, right. Yeah, you say cynical, maybe it's discerning, maybe it's wisdom. You know what I mean? So right. anyway. Yeah. And you can, you can still, you can still like point out, some problems with an argument without dehumanizing the person who thinks that's a compelling argument. Yes. 
and that that's the difference. And that's what I, I again try, try, try to do in the book is let's just stick to the content of this argument. Let me affirm some things that I think are really helpful. Actually, this there's parts of this argument that I think are helpful. Mm-hmm. Love is love is is one that on a logical level, it's like, gosh, you can easily dismantle this argument. Well, love is love. Therefore, you know, same-sex marriage should be legit. Mm -hmm. That was was one where I had to really pull back and say, well, what's, when people raise that argument, did they really think they're giving like the most sophisticated theological argument? Or is it just a cry of the human heart? We all want to love and be loved and know and be known. Like, so let's, let's get behind the argument to the person actually making it and really get in touch with that person. Yeah, And, And, you know, that doesn't mean you don't respond to the argument, but let's make sure we see it as part of this holistic person's experience rather than just a standalone argument that we just dismantle and and move on. So yeah. So when it comes to like the actual conversation of marriage, okay, let's talk about that first. Yeah. My sticking point has been, and typically like my just contribution to the conversation, and this is a gross oversimplification because I want to talk about other things than just this. Yeah. Is well, what if like what the world has isn't actually marriage? Hmm. Like what if marriage was God's idea? It's a covenant mm-hmm. before him between a man and a woman, the like lifelong, stick it out, better or worse, all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like what if that's marriage and everything else mm-hmm. is just like including same sex mm-hmm. or not, isn't it's it's a partnership. It's a like, what if marriage was actually God's idea and the rest of it is, it's not even like, if you're not standing in front of God and saying like, we're better for the kingdom together, Mm. we're doing this to glorify your name. Like everything else is something else. That's an interesting, let let me, let me quickly affirm that I do believe, um, I I 100% agree with you. It is God, primarily marriage is God's, the creator's design and intention. It is primarily a theological institution, if you want to use that yeah. that language, um, yeah. that is maybe recognized or not recognized by the state, but it's not, sometimes we turn it around like, well, the state legalized it and therefore it's like, right. oh, no, that's the wrong, that's the wrong starting point. God designed it this way. And it's really up for other people to recognize it or not recognize it. But you're going even further than that to say, what if we didn't even really care about how or I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, why yeah. even call everything else marriage? I, I I do. It's an interesting point. I guess my initial thought is I do think marriage is primarily and fundamentally a theological institution created by God. And it comes with all the rules that God has established for it, which you can't really be adhered to unless you're following God. Right. I would say that it is also fundamental for human civilization and every culture. In fact, there's a great... Um, really good book called Marriage, uh, I think a, a short history by a secular person, kind of going through all societies and and showing how marriage as the location where children are raised and reared mm-hmm. is in part of every civilization across. Right. But then all. if you believe that every civilization originates in Adam, mm. then it all comes back to like, it was always yeah God's, right? Yeah. So I, I, I guess I would... I'm totally just like spitballing. I'm like, this is just I like, love it. I love it. I thought about it, you know? I, so here's what I, I would say, I don't have a problem calling it marriage. If it reflects the kind of basic ingredients of God's design, even if there's not a Jesus following thing there, mm-hmm. but that this is where, yeah, I wouldn't, I mean, we may be jumping ahead here, but this thing that society calls same sex marriage, 
you know, for the sake of being a missionary in a secular culture, you know, I'll, I'll use that language. But if if we're really getting down into the weeds, I would say biblically, by definition, this specific relationship called marriage, that sex difference, male and female, is an essential part of what marriage is. This is what I talk about in the second chapter. That yeah. And if somebody says, no, I don't think it is, okay, then let's linger on that difference here for a while. Like, what reason can you give me for defining marriage as simply a union between two humans, regardless of sex difference? Like, that came from somewhere. Right. Really, that's a unique definition of marriage that didn't exist before, like, 50 years ago in the West, you know? Right. So we need to understand what, when we say the word marriage, and I think I even use the illustration, like, if a Martian from outer space came and, you know, one of these UFOs we keep reading about... (laughs) You're like, you like wrote that and then aliens became real. I know. I just missed the boat. But like, you know, in theory, like if somebody, a UFO, Martian, or even just somebody that didn't speak English was talking with you and you used the word marriage and they said, oh, I'm not familiar with that word. Like, what does that word mean? Like, Mm -hmm. how would we actually define the word marriage? And I would say something like when two people of different biological sexes, you know, come together to form a lifelong covenant union. Mm -hmm. Whereas somebody who affirms same-sex marriage has to leave out the sex difference part of their definition, which is, right. which is okay. So where did you get that from though? Like that mm-hmm. comes from somewhere. I can show you from scripture, from society, even where I get sex difference from. And we're already getting into argument stage here, but I, th- I think it no, is no, important no, yeah. that the, the fundamental part of the theological conversation is this basic fundamental question about what is marriage rather right. than racing to Romans or the stuff that I'm sure we're going to get to these prohibition passages, I think we need to linger on this question of what is marriage for a while. Cause I think a lot of people really haven't sorted out. Why do I think this about marriage or not think this about marriage? You know? Well, and that's kind of where like my original argument in air quotes mm. originated yeah. was like people going to these prohibition chapters versus books, mm-hmm. which like, yes, we need to talk about those things, but look at the Bible holistically Mm-hmm. And like, tell me what marriage is. And you, there is no, there's no plausible way to deny what biblical marriage is. It's a man and a woman. Now, is it sometimes a man and multiple women? Yeah, that's a different <laughs> conversation. But yeah, like, yeah. it's always. Sex difference is always involved. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the, so some of the counter arguments to that is like, well, yeah, that was necessary to start to populate the earth. It's there mm-hmm. in Genesis 2. You can't be fruitful and multiply unless it's male and female. But now the earth is more than well populated. So we've kind of moved beyond that original design of marriage. That, that's one counter argument I address in the book. Or sure, that's the majority of marriages, just mm-hmm. like the majority of marriages will result in procreation, but some are infertile, some are between people of old age, some are between people who have their sexual anatomy cut off or something. You know, like there's there's yeah. always kind of exceptions to the norm. And people would say same-sex marriage would be one of those exceptions to the norm. But there are no exceptions to the norm in scripture. And do we believe that it is like living and applicable and like alive and withstands generations or not? Right. Well, and also, I mean, it feels like I'm almost arguing against my own thesis for the sake of making this (laughs) an interesting. (laughs) When I respond to, again, this is, I think, chapter three or four, you know, that, oh, well, that's just, that's in Genesis. That was necessary to get this whole thing started, but it's not. It was never intended to be forever. It's like, well, Jesus in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 affirms male-female marriage, and he goes back to the creational account. Right. And so that, you know, this is Jesus's sort of ethical 
direction of reasoning that he, when he, when he, when we want to look at what is God's original design, he goes back to Genesis one and two, and he affirms that this is not just good for then, but good for all time. So right. you would almost have to say Jesus's use of Genesis is irrelevant. Right. And if we go there, then it's like, well, we have a bigger kind of conversation. We're having so a whole yeah. different conversation if that's where we go with it, honestly. Yeah. Okay. So I have a question about Romans one. Okay. Okay. So this is like straight up. I'm like, this is a question that I've asked multiple people. Yeah. <laughs> and look at you and your Bible tab. It's because I'm ADHD. And if I can't find it immediately, I'll give up. It's <laughs> a great Awana Bible right there. It is an Awana Bible. Gives you a crush. Uh, um, so <laughs> Romans one, in case people aren't like familiar, it's the guilt mm -hmm. of the Gentile world. And it's, it's mm -hmm. talking about God's wrath and how it's revealed. Right. So yeah. It's really interesting to read if you read it prescriptively, mm -hmm. right? That like God's wrath doesn't show up as lightning bolts, right? right. The, the way he lays it out is that like people are without excuse to know me and that there are people who have the ability to know me who suppress truth and therefore like God delivers them over to their sin and their minds are corrupted. Mm -hmm. Why do you think homosexuality is directly called out in that passage, right? Yes. Like, couldn't Paul have written all of that because it applies to anyone that makes those decisions? Why does it, why do you think it directly says, therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity? Like that is what is yeah. called out where like there, there's any list of lifelong sin choices that you can make mm -hmm. that will hand you over to like God's wrath, right? So that's an interesting, whenever people ask, you know, why did God or why did Paul, I, I want to say my response is going to be very open-handed because I'm, you right. know, we're trying to climb inside someone's mind that we can't. We're just trying to look at their historical situation, the argument and try to make sense of maybe the why, but we have to be really careful with, with answering the why question. I would say there's a few factors here. And first of all, I always want to preface whenever we dive into these five or six prohibition passages. Again, the main question is, what is marriage? And, and Paul, as a first century Jew, there was zero debate that sex difference is an essential part of what marriage is. There was also zero debate about whether there was any place for any kind of same-sex sexual relationship in right. God's design. That's where Paul's coming from. Right. There's two things to answer your question though, that might be interesting to note is that number one, you know, he's writing to the Roman church in the first century. Mm. Rome was notorious for having very, it was kind of like, I mean, Rome in the first century was like America in the 1960s. Now. There was a lot <laughs> of sexual, yeah. lots of stuff going on. And same-sex sexual relationships were pretty wide, widespread. So yeah. just from a context, and he's writing from Corinth, which is another right. Two of the three places he mentions same-sex relationships are First Corinthians and Romans. Well, right. he's writing from Corinth to the Romans and Romans. So I think there might be a, a, a historical relevance to why he brings it up. He does mention, I mean, in one in Romans one twenty four, he mentions that that's not unique to same-sex relationships. That's all right. kind of sexual. So he's not just picking on same-sex. He is trying to give a, a broad brush on all kinds of different sins. Yeah. Okay, here's what I think is going on here. The answer to this is probably the most precise response I can give to your question is rhetorically, Romans 1, 18 to 32 is a bit of a setup. Mm. He's really, the main heart of his argument is to hit the, 
the moral person or the Jewish person in chapter two. And so I think he's he's getting his audience, his largely, well, Jewish Gentile audience, he's getting the Jewish audience on his side mm. by writing chapter one. So everybody's like, yeah, 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 go get him, Paul. Those Gentiles, those Gentiles. And then he turns around in two, chapter two, verse one, and says, who are you? So he is kind of highlighting these well-known, kind of the notorious Gentile sins because he wants the Jewish moral reader on his side so that he can kind of yeah. blast them in chapter two so that all we are all equally sinful before God. Yeah. So I do think that because this behavior, same-sex sexual relationships were not, as far as we can tell, prevalent in Judaism, Yeah. it was an easy kind of Gentile sin to, to, to get Paul on his side. Now, some people say everything I, I said, and they'll go one step further and say, yeah, he's just using a rhetorical setup. And I'm like, well, he is, but he, he still believes what he says in chapter exactly. one. Like, look at everything else he says there. He believes everything he's saying. It's not like he doesn't believe it. So, And why would that, like, why would it be in scripture if it was a throwaway? Right. That I don't think anything in scripture, I don't want to consider anything in scripture a throwaway <laughs> yeah, because then yeah. you can do that with anything, honestly. Right, right, right. right. But yeah, yeah, that, like, I was literally reading it before we, like, set up this interview. Hmm. And I when when I saw you know, like what we were going to be talking about. I was like, I have a question, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. as a student <laughs> of the word, like, yeah. and that makes so much sense though. <laughs> like it really does. And that's why I understand. And I like, I know the context and I know what it's written for, but to just kind of pull away from it and go, he's, he believes what he's saying sure, and yeah. like with conviction, but he's also like, he's calling out. It's almost like he's calling out the things that like, okay, we're all agreed this is wrong, right? Okay. He's stating the obvious. He, he's kind of preaching to the choir a little bit in chapter one, which again is almost when people say it's it's a throwaway, it's just rhetorical. It's like, it's actually kind of the opposite. He's taking it so for granted. Right. That these are obviously so bad. You know, these are all sins, including 29 other sins he lists. So I, this is, again, he's not picking on just same-sex stuff. He does mention right. it, but so it's clearly not you know, a throwaway. Although I do, have you heard people use that? I've heard people, that's more of a scholarly argument. Yeah. I've, there's a few scholars who have tried to make that argument that, you know, I don't think it's that popular as far as I can tell. But anyway. No, that was, my question was genuinely like the most innocent, like why? Why? Yeah. Why this one? Like he could have left like two words and <laughs> verse 26 and 27 out. Yeah. And then the whole thing like would have been would have would have applied to everybody, mm -hmm. quote unquote, mm -hmm. you know, and it does. But yeah. like to me, to your point, like that communicates as well as like being like a, almost like a gimme mm -hmm. for Paul, like a we're all agreed like this is understood mm -hmm. that like but it's also important enough that it's like he highlighted it. Sure. Yeah. Right. And that like it's included, you know, and to me that that communicates like there's something integrally against God's design. Yeah. When we make those choices. Yeah. And I think that's what you just said there might play a role, too, that earlier in that chapter in verses 18 to 23, he is going back to kind of this fundamental departure from creation. Right. And that kind of plays into when he says, you know, this specific sin is against nature. And, you know, that there's debates about what exactly is going there. But it does seem like he's reaching for things that aren't just that, that are going against kind of the, the structures of creation, if you will. Right. And, 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 and when males and females start expressing their sexuality against 
God's design, and, and that can happen in a myriad of different ways, mm-hmm. not just same-sex relationships. But I think that that is kind of illustrative of this kind of departure from God's creative design. There, yeah. there might be some of that going on there, but again, we're we're, we're you know we're trying to climb inside Paul's head, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And that's I mean that's some of it is just it's just theory and opinion, right? Yeah. There are three specific quote unquote arguments that I see a lot in the conversation online that I get, I get so many DMs and then people in my like smaller groups that are wanting to have these conversations and want to engage in them well, but then they almost get dumped. Mm -hmm. And I always like, there is a responsibility, I think on our parts to do our own work and research and understanding, but we're really lucky to have people like you who do the like years worth of work and study and can help us unpack these conversations. Yeah. And so if it's cool with you, I would love to like go through those three and just kind of give us your like theological, what you found Mm -hmm. in terms of specifically homosexuality and same sex relationships. Sure. And like, look, I'm going to say this, honestly, this is hard. Like as someone who wants to love people, who wants to be a place for people to come and feel safe calling out sin period is difficult yeah but it's necessary it's done over and over through scripture by people who love the people that they're talking to right so the first one that you see come up is that the all of the times that it's called out in scripture it's actually in conjunction with idol worship mm-hmm. that they only the like the same sex relationship, marriage, whatever is fine as long as it's not taking place contextually in these scriptures in like temples that worship other gods. Yeah. Have you seen that? Yes, I have. So I, I kind of wear two hats. One is kind of the scholarly hat, like what's going on in the scholarly discussion and then what's going on sort of in the pews on the ground. That argument, I would say among scholars was pretty popular in the 80s and 90s. You don't always see it in scholarship anymore. Yeah. I mean, it may, it may pop up here and there, but it's it's just, it's, it is kind of hard to prove on a scholarly level. Um, but here, I guess here, here's my response. Number one, again, I, this is, I don't mind being redundant on this point because it's just so lost in the conversation. The main theological question is what is marriage? Yeah. So the, the statements about marriage, primarily, you know, the big passages are Genesis 1 and 2, Matthew 19, even Ephesians 5, Mark 10. Those statements about what marriage is are not even stated in a context where it's condemning idolatry. Like the traditional right. view of marriage, male and female, has nothing to do with idolatry other than if you don't do that, then maybe that's a form of idolatry or something. But so that's a starting place. Right. So even if the specifically the same sex prohibitions were thinking of a kind of idolatry associated like like you, you know you go in and have say a same sex relationship with maybe a, a temple cult prostitute or something or these practices were associated with other pagan idol worship practices or whatever even if that were true that wouldn't change the definition of marriage it wouldn't right. that's not enough to kind of argue for same sex marriage what if you just like boil it down to relationship what do you mean does the conversation change if you take the institution of marriage out of the conversation or does it not yeah, I, I think the Christian prohibition, the prohibitions in the Bible about 
same-sex sexual relationships are wrapped up with a theology of marriage. Like yeah. why, like people say, why are these, why are certain sexual practices deemed sin? And that would, it, part of the a response would go back to God design marriage as a specific institution with a certain definition, with a certain set of purposes. Right. One being procreation. I know that opens up questions or whatever, but like. But, that, but that's also like not the only. Not the only purpose. It's no, not the only no. purpose. No, no, no. Yeah. That'd be a very, like, I'm right. so thankful it's not because like, <laughs> look, I'm about it, but that's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I, I'm getting kind of too far off the rails here, but. No, you're good. All that to say for various reasons, all I believe, and most Christians around the globe believe that all sexual relationships belong within the covenant bond of marriage. Right. Any sexual relationship that is not marriage should not happen, you know, and there's various reasons for that. So historically, it's just not true. No, it's very difficult to prove. (laughs) Yes, yes. I mean, the historical knowledge we have around, for instance, temple cult practices and sexuality, it's way more meager than people think. In fact, there was a book, a scholarly book written several years ago by a a pop-notch scholar called The Myth of temple cult prostitution. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning like the evidence we even have for some of these, you know, oh yeah, you would go to the temple and have sex with this prostitute. And it was, you know, to participate in this fertility cult or something like a lot right. of our historical knowledge of that. I mean, if people care, a lot of it goes back to Herodotus writing from Greece in the fourth century BC. And if you go back to actually the original sources, there's, there's minimal evidence for that specific thing happening. And also yeah. just, we read about same-sex sexual relationships in the Greco-Roman world many of which weren't like even connected with like a temple or some exactly. type of idol worship or something. So, and there's nothing in Paul's specific language that really limits it to that. Romans one's a great example. He's taught, he's right. talking really broadly about departing from the creator's design. And here's various ways in which that might look like, you know, right. it look like that. First Corinthians six, nine, that also mentions same sex, sexual relationships. There's not I mean, in the very same context, he mentions adultery or just sexual immorality as a whole. Yeah. Which we wouldn't say like, oh, adultery is only bad, you know, if it's connected with idolatry, but non-idolatrous adultery is perfectly fine. Like, we like wouldn't... I feel like that would be laid out. Right. 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 Like if that was the yeah. take, then that we wouldn't be having to do like biblical gymnastics. Right. To try to make it happen. Right. So another one that I know you talk about in the book is that it's about consensuality. Okay. Yeah. Like that Paul's not talking about consensual relationships. He's talking about right either children or non-consensual same-sex sexual relationships. Yeah. So the argument is in Paul's world, we'll just, we'll just stay with Paul. Yeah. You know, in his world, consensual adult, same-sex sexual relationships didn't, didn't exist. They were all abusive. They were all older men with younger boys, a master, maybe raping a male slave or, or male prostitution, or even, you know, best case scenario, you have two people of like unequal statuses, some mm-hmm. high status Roman citizen being the, to get a little more explicit, being the active partner with another young, lower status male citizen. And it, it's true. You look at the historical sources and a lot of these same-sex sexual relationships were along those lines. Mm-hmm. My pushback is not exclusively. Like you do right. see a wide range, even if that was kind of the dominant form among male, I'll come back mm-hmm. to that, male same-sex sexual relationships. You do see exceptions to that. And, well, I guess while I'm there, 
But the exact opposite is true when it comes to female same-sex relationships. And this is why Romans one twenty six is really important, that Paul prohibits or condemns not only male same-sex relationships, but female same-sex relationships. But what we know from the ancient sources, almost all female same-sex relationships were between same status, same age, consensual women. They were even, in some cases, described with like marital language. They Mm -hmm. they couldn't be legal marriages. So it's just simply inaccurate to say Paul had no category for two adults entering into a consensual same-sex relationship. This is something I don't bring out in the book, but how do I say it? it? It is a bit of a modern assumption that Paul would have a huge, in the first century, that anybody in the first century would have a problem with like non-consensual marriages when in an, in an era when that they were hardly the arranged. <laughs> or like, or, or Paul had a problem with the age difference. He would have a, he didn't care about the same sex component. It was, a, you know, the man was like 30 years old and the boy was, you know, 16 and he had a problem with that. I'm like, well, all marriages are like that. Like literally all marriages. Right. <laughs> and that right. goes back to one of the big things that I guess like shaped my firm belief in in this subject. Cause I used to be a little like, hmm. I believe, you know, <laughs> was learning more about Judaism. Oh, yeah. And yeah. learning like men cannot share a bed like platonically on vacation, right? To me, that made it very clear that this isn't like this is not as nuanced as we want it to be. Maybe it's not as like murky. Like, yeah, no, if we're coming off of like the God of Jacob and yes, that's obviously like the religious outcome Mm -hmm. of that. Like if you talk to people who actively practice Judaism, they will tell you like same sex marriage, like same sex people can't share a bed. Mm -hmm. Like if they Mm -hmm. go on vacation, they have to have two separate beds. Wow. But we think that they were okay with like yeah. a same-sex marriage. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing. Like how can Paul's, what Paul's saying be about age differences or class differences when that was, that was everything. Like every, right. almost every relationship went through one mm-hmm. of those channels. Right. And then, you know, people could go even further to say, okay, well, And that means we should kind of move beyond the Bible because Paul, yeah, he had all these kind of non-consensual patriarchal views of marriage. But then I would push back, I guess, and say, well, yes, Paul lived in a very patriarchal male-dominated society, but both Jesus and him moved toward, I mean, this is going to open up a whole nother, I'm not not using this term in the egalitarian and complementarian women in church debates, but like the New Testament is profoundly liberating and, and anti-misogynistic in its own context. 100%. Enlightened 21st century America, because we've totally nailed it, right? We got it all <laughs> like, figured like out. For, we wish it would have gone further, but there was a lot of deconstructing these kind of patriarchal structures in the first centuries. Yeah. The biggest thing for me too, is going back to your original question about, isn't Paul just talking about non-consensual relationships? Like there's no evidence in the text itself. Mm-mm. So we, you have to do two things. You look at the history, you know, and there we see, well, it's, more diverse than just saying they were all non-consensual. And then you go to the actual language Paul's using. There's nothing in the actual language that would suggest Paul's main concern isn't the same sex component. It's the domination. It's the age difference or whatever. There's nothing. I mean, there were several different Greek words used to describe older men and younger boys. Pediathoris or whatever. Like he doesn't use any of those words. He just uses male, female, the basic language surrounding the creation of males and females as different biological sexes. So yeah, yeah, that, that, that's another argument that was really popular among scholarship in the 
20, 30 years ago. And there was a, well, just I'll say this and move on, but a well-known in the scholarly world, Christian expert in ancient Judaism and Christianity and, and their sexual practices. He literally wrote over a period of 10 or 12 years, six scholarly books on sexuality in Judaism and Christianity. Bill Bill Loader, he's, he's like the recognized hands down world expert in this area. Yeah. He also is a, he's a Methodist, I believe. And he like, he's a Christian and he's affirming. Yeah. And he shows over and over and over again, he would agree with everything I'm saying. He's like, yeah, this argument doesn't work because it yeah. just is, is historically and biblically untrue. Huh. Paul was clearly talking about all kinds of same-sex relationships. Doesn't matter whether they're consensual or not consensual. And he says in, in a book that I edited, he, I had him write an essay, and that's why we need to move beyond Paul. Like mm-hmm. he would at least be honest with the biblical material and historical material and say, that's why, you know, Paul's didn't know about sexual orientation. He's not as enlightened as we are today. So he probably wouldn't have said the things he did if he had our knowledge. Now, again, that takes us into a whole nother realm of yeah. like biblical authority and you know, whatever. But yeah. um, at least he was like, you know, I affirm same-sex marriage and this argument just doesn't doesn't hold weight. Right. Yeah. Like even he was willing to be like, no, that one doesn't really like it doesn't hold up. Right. 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 Okay. I want to kind of shift the conversation a little bit. So one of the things that you're very clear in like your preface and in everything is that this, this book, it does not go beyond the B, right? Like it's the LGB. (laughs) And then like, we're like, because the rest of it really is a completely different conversation. Yeah. And I hear that from like the people in my life that I know that are like either homosexual or struggle with same sex attraction that like they're like what that's not like I don't even <laughs> we're not the, like we're not having the same conversations yeah. but one thing that we kind of talked about this offline and I think it's a really interesting interesting conversation for believers is when it comes to the transsexual conversation mm-hmm. pronouns <laughs> yeah. that's a Let's quick right turn pronouns wait what yeah that's a harsh right turn. Like, oh, yeah. The, like, welcome to Confessions of a Crabby Christian. We're just going to, like, talk about whatever I want to talk about today. I love it. <laughs> so there's there's two, like, sides of this coin, right? Let's say there's people that believe as believers, like, as Christians. We're just going to talk about it specifically through that lens. Should use people's preferred pronouns and should not. From what I understand of, like, consuming your content, I think we have different opinions about it. Yeah. And so I wanted to like hear from you what your beliefs are on that. Okay. Good. Good. And and I would, I would, I, I think, I don't know if there's two, I think there's variations to various perspectives. So for yeah. instance, you know, John Piper and many in the Southern Baptist convention, the kind of leaders in this conversation would say no on pronouns, but they would say yes on, for instance, somebody using a different name. Mm. Or, you know, I've heard some people say, I just use pronoun avoidant. So they wouldn't deliberately use someone's chosen pronouns, nor their biological sex pronouns. They would just avoid it altogether. Which is what I tend to lean towards, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think that's good. Let me say, okay, I want to, I I don't want to take a half hour, but I, I don't like giving thin answers to complex questions. No, 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 yeah, we got time. Let me, um, so a couple things up front. Number one, I do believe this is a very complex question. I don't think if you thought about it for like five seconds, then you've thought about it enough to have a strong no. opinion on it. I also think there's really good Christians on both sides that raise really good arguments. So mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, th- I think I told you offline, like I'm probably 75, 80% yeah. confident in, in what I'm about to say in my approach. Uh, but I, you know, 
I understand that the pushbacks to my argument, I think, raise very valid concerns that I share. So the approach that I've landed landed on based on you know what, what I've thought through is what I call pronoun hospitality, where in most cases, not every case, but in most cases, out of an act of hospitality, not agreement, I will use someone's preferred pronouns. Mm-hmm. Now, here, here's one main reason. The, the, okay, the biggest pushback is, well, you're you're lying to them. And even as my friend Denny Burke said, you're feeding delusion. You're mm-hmm. like they're delusional and you're just, that's not even loving. Like you're actually feeding their delusion. I've got a lot of friends who are trans and not a single one would match the clinical definition of delusional for for what it's worth. <laughs> and I've never had anybody come to Christ saying, oh, thank you so much for calling me delusional. Now I'm, you know, right. I, so I, I would, I would be careful with even that language, but that that's, that's the concern. And I'm like, well, I don't want to lie and I don't want to feed people's delusion if that's actually happening. So I share these concerns. Here's where I get to a pronoun hospitality position is that well, let me just use an illustration for how many, do, do people watch this or is it just audio? This this one will be both. Okay. So I'm holding up two fingers. Here's person A over here. I'll be person A. Here's person B over here. I believe, and this is true, I, I believe pronouns should match one's biological sex. Mm-hmm. But most people believe, it's what everybody believed until, you know, five, five years, years ago, ago, 10 years ago. <laughs> so that, that's what I believe. And I've got reasons for that. I, I can argue that scientifically, ethically. What if I meet person B who says, no, my pronouns match my gender identity? not my biological sex. They mm-hmm. may not even, I know a lot of trans people who don't b- think they're the opposite sex. They would just have this concept of gender identity that your internal sense of who you are is more true to who you are. Some people even wrote, rooted into that brain body disconnection. They would mm-hmm. even go back to the fall and have this really sophisticated theological, neurological explanation for why there is some sort of mismatch here between brain and body. I've argued against all that, but I'm at least there's some more sophisticated forms of it. Yeah. So they're like my gender identity, my pronouns match my gender identity now. Okay. So language is shared social space. That is the glue in a society where people might have different worldviews mm-hmm. and they use language mm-hmm. that reflects their different worldviews. So I can say I, I'm person A, I could say no pronouns match biological sex. They could say no, my pronouns match gender identity. I could say, I don't even like the concept of gender identity. Well, I don't like you. I don't, you know, we're just at it kind of a stalemate. So mm-hmm. I'm going to say, okay, for the sake of meeting someone where they're at, I'm not going to agree with them, mm. but I will accommodate to their use of language as it reflects their worldview as a way of meeting them where they're at. Mm-hmm. Is that a fail proof? And I, and I, in my book, and I wrote a book on transgender identities as a chapter on this. And, you know, I use examples of, and these aren't, these are not exact parallels at all. No. And look, like understand that for the most part, like my audience is used to these conversations being yeah. very nuanced and like kind of open-ended. Like I'm not trying to land the plane. Yeah. I'm not trying to like give you <laughs> yeah. all of the answers. Like we're just, we're just chatting. Yeah. And so this is not a one-to-one parallel, but you know, like even in Acts 17, Paul uses the Greek term theos, which means God. And he used it when he's referring to Zeus and mm-hmm. other, the, the Greek gods. And it's mm-hmm. like in that passage, he's not affirming. He just, he's using the language in a way that they would understand to kind of make that missional connection or even in cross-cultural, you know, when I lived in Scotland for three years, you know, pants were called trousers, football was called, so- or soccer was called football. Right? So I mean, there, <laughs> there's, 
Uh, and again, these are not ethical people are like, Oh, those are, you know, those aren't ethical questions. This one is. And I get that. I'm just saying that like, I just want to highlight language in a society where there's various worldviews and people using language differently. It's complex. It's complex. Yeah. And here's one last point on a practical level. I've got several friends who, are, who either did or do identify as trans who no longer use preferred pronouns. Mm. Like I have a friend, a couple, one in particular is trans and used to go by pronouns that didn't match her biological sex, but now she's very okay with it, but she mm. would still say she's trans. Another friend who met amazing a, a couple pastors and then ended up, she had transitioned five years before and she ended up detransitioning back to her biological sex. Every single person I know mm-hmm. who used to or does still identify as trans who does not demand who does not use preferred pronouns, they all have told me almost, I mean, all independently, but almost in unison, if I had met a Christian early on and they, de- they didn't use my preferred pronouns, I probably wouldn't even be a Christian right now because they met me where I was at. Mm. They didn't demand overnight sanctification. They set this aside. They didn't make this a big deal. They used my preferred pronouns. And it was that expression of hospitality that kind of like, oh my gosh, I've never experienced a Christian being kind, you know, and just kind of meeting me mm-hmm. where I'm at. And it was over a, a sanctification process where they ended up yeah. using their their pronouns. So that's not an ethical argument. It is more just, I guess, a pastoral observation that yeah. if you refuse to use someone's pronouns, you keep calling a, a female, you know, she, her, when she wants you to call her, they, them, or, or he, him, or whatever. That's, that's an in, almost in, in most cases, an immediate relationship ender. Absolutely. So if it was sin, if I thought, if I thought it was a sin, not sin issue, then I would still do it to me. I'm like, I'm, I'm enough of a, not Calvinist, but I, I believe in Crabby God's Christian. sovereignty enough to say, <laughs> look, my, my sort of relational, whatever is not at the end of the day, not going to save people. It's God that saves people. So, but I just, I don't, because I just don't, I see it a little more complex than simply this is either telling the truth or lying. I think there's a language complexity here Then in most cases, I'm going to use someone's pronouns. I will say a parent with younger kids, I would advise that parent in most cases, no, I don't think you should. Yeah. You have a unique parental authority, especially if the kid's young, giving them affirmation in this area from an authoritative position could actually push them further down a road of transitioning that I don't want. I don't, I don't, I do think it's transitioning is can't be biblically justified. So I do take a, a pretty controversial stance on that in the, in the book. So yeah. anyway, I, I've done talking too much. No, 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 not at all. I'd love I, to I hear think, your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny. I mean, you kind of like laid out where I tend to land on it. I do lean more towards pronoun pronoun avoidance if I can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not the kind of person that's like, no, I'm going to call you a he, right? Like, I'm not okay. that okay. guy. You're not that guy. That's funny. <laughs> right. <laughs> like to bring it full circle. But I do struggle with on the side of, you know, scripturally, like let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Yeah. Like that, you know, telling the truth in love, even if it hurts, yeah. those kind of parts. I think for me, relationally, I live in the deep south. So I don't have mm. like a lot of transsexual mm-hmm. friends you know it's not like yeah, sure. it's not as actually <laughs> like prevalent and out here but i think for me i would struggle with and i've thought about exactly what you were just saying of mm-hmm. becoming friends with someone who gender dysphoria or whatever mm-hmm. it is 
and them going through the sanctification process and getting to the other side. And your point makes sense that they were like, if someone, if a Christian hadn't affirmed, like, you know, use my preferred pronouns. I don't know if I'd be a Christian now. I think I would almost get to the other side and be like, man, I lied to you in the beginning. Mm. Right. Like, man, I like, I affirmed what you were struggling with instead of Mm -hmm. taking the route of like, of, you know, not needing to like be a hardliner and use their actual pronouns, but like avoiding, I think that's the part of like affirmation that's hard for me sometimes. So I do want to make a distinction. I I think I alluded to it earlier, but just to reaffirm, like I I am not asking Christians to agree with the other person's worldview. Now, again, I I don't, I, I know lots of trans people personally that don't think they are actually the opposite biological sex. Right. For them, it's kind of like, I don't know, these pronouns exacerbate or used to exacerbate my dysphoria. And so I was just scrambling to not want to kill myself, you know, and right. this yeah. helped. If somebody, and I've had a lot of parents, especially now, especially now. Yeah. You know, a lot of parents say, no, my 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 daughter came home and says, I'm a boy. You need to not just call me a boy, but you need to believe I'm a boy. Right. Daughter or not, stranger or not, I would a hundred percent tell Christians, no, you need to believe the truth. And again, what I'm arguing for is an accommodation, not believing or even pretending like you believe their worldview, but accommodating to their their worldview. Right. And do you see like do you see where and you know, like you you said earlier, like you know, I'm 75% sold on this or whatever. Like that to me is where it gets sticky, right? Is Mm -hmm. like so now I'm telling you something that I don't believe. That's hard, right? Best case relational scenario would be you're close enough to the person to say, hey, look, I love you. Mm-hmm. I do not understand what you're going through. Again, let's just assume this other person, same the, the pronouns that match biological sex spikes dysphoria. Like I've got a friend that every time they heard the pro- pronouns that match their biological sex, they would spikes of dysphoria, go home and just cut the heck out of their arms, you know? And right. Like, and like, I, I don't want to facilitate that. Right, obviously. Right. right. Which pronoun avoidance would do that. But if that person said, I need you to believe that I'm the opposite sex, I would say, I love you. I don't believe that. And in I fact, I would say, that. I would say, and this comes from a, a, a trans friend of mine, uh, Julia Malat, trans person transitioned. And she said, it's actually worse for trans people to try to convince themselves that they are the opposite sex. Mm. My friend who's biologically male presents as female transition, fully transition says biologically I am male. And until I came to grips with that, I was utterly unhappy because I was trying to convince everybody I'm something I'm not. Yeah. And I would, it, I'd be so depressed and people weren't affirming my, it, was, it just isn't real. But I see it, but I feel like that's what's, leading the conversation. I feel like the leading in the conversation is like, you need to believe and affirm that I am what I'm telling you. I think that's what a lot of Christians are coming up against. And like, is it all going to be in these like ideal relational settings? Mm. Like, no, it's just not as great as that would be, you know? And so I think it's, and it is, it's so nuanced and it's so difficult because as Christians, like leading with love and wanting to be known by our fruit. Like, I don't want to be doing anything that hurts other people, but yeah. Yeah. I also am not going to put aside truth. And cause like, that's kind of my whole thing. Like, I'm going to tell you the truth, even if it hurts. Right. Like that's that's like Jesus's whole thing, (laughs) you know? And so it is, it's so nuanced and such a complex conversation. And I really genuinely like see where you're, 
Like I see what you're saying a hundred percent. I would also say there is a social, like people say, no pronouns, always biological sex. If I wanted to get cheeky, I guess I would even push on that a little bit. Like, are you talking like if they have a Y chromosome? Cause I've some friends with a Y chromosome that are look like you. I mean, they're, yeah. you know, they're hundred percent, you know, they, it's an, they might have an intersex condition or what if somebody is just fully transit? Like my audience can Google, let me just maybe Blair White, Google yeah. Blair White images. Right. Yeah. If you're meeting Blair White for lunch and the waiter says, oh, is your party here? And I said, yeah, it's that dude over there. They'd be like, right. Like that's like, being purposefully hurtful. Yeah. And, and that you would say, oh, she's over there. Mm-hmm. Or you might say, I guess if you're really, you might say they're over there or something, you yeah. know, but like th- there's a certain social element that pronouns, yes, they match biological sex, but also the social presentation yeah. of biological sex too. You're not doing chromosome checks on people. No, that's, that, <laughs> yeah. that's, I'm, I'm getting a little lost in the weeds there, but I do want to at least unearth some of the absolutely layers of complexity for people to appreciate. But, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. This was yeah. an amazing <laughs> conversation and I knew it was going to be, I was like, I'm yeah. just going to, we're just going to go wherever love it, it goes I love it. and i wish people wouldn't divide this is where like I, I at least i would if people can recognize the complexity and still agree to disagree that's a mm-hmm. win for me that's yeah absolutely win. it's when people just throw grenades and you're a heretic and you're denying the bible and all these things I'm like that's just not that's just not helpful but yeah no i agree and like look i have like i do have some strong opinions like i think i think it's I'm, this is gonna be unpopular i think it's strange when like I think it is strange for people like you and I to have our pronouns in our bio. Yeah, I won't. I actually won't. No, like you're a man. I can like, yeah. and yeah. I'm looking at you. I can tell you're a man. Like, why right, are we right, doing right. that? Like as believers, what, that's pandering in my personal opinion, you know? Yeah. And so like that opens a whole different conversation of like, <laughs> I have a very strong, this is going to sound crappy, but it's on brand. <laughs> Like <laughs> you're allowed to be crap. That I is am. such a genius brand. Oh. You're allowed to be crappy because you're like, genius. hey, that's the podcast. Sorry. It's literally the brand. But like, if you are trying to lecture me on my theology, and we're talking, this is online, and you have your pronouns in your bio, I, you have to tell me what your biological sex is. Like, I think I'm good. You know what I mean? Yeah, and like, I yeah. don't mean that in like a callous, like over, it's just become this litmus test for me of like, I yeah. love engaging. I love having these conversations. And it's not to say that I won't engage with people with their pronouns in their bio, but like, why? Yeah. What are you proving to who? <laughs> I would say there, there's, I, I would uh, maybe at least like there, there could be ma- many different reasons why people might, might, might do that. One might be, they might be in a market, a workplace where it's kind of required. And I would protest that it should be required, obviously, but there might be some places where people are like, okay, is this the hill I'm going to die on? Yeah. I'm reaching tons of people for Christ. I need this job. I'm not going to feed my family without, and I'm just not going to die on this hill. Or I've got a friend who's, who's not from America. He's only been in America for a few years and he, he's theologically very conservative. He's got pronouns in his, yeah. in his social media. I think he's just dead. Cause he just saw other people do it. Everybody else is doing it. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, or, you know, some of my, the, the, the argument is, and again, I don't, I'm not necessarily agreeing with it, but like, you know, it's a really hard for actual trans people with actual severe dysphoria to share their pronouns. So if everybody's kind of doing it, then it's not a big deal for them to do yeah. it. Is you know that's the argument. I I still don't. Yeah, I I don't like the term like cis like cisgender cis male. Yeah, I'm not cis white. I'm not cis forty seven. I'm not cis male. I'm just male. I'm forty seven. You know, like there's yeah. certain just objective realities in my life that I don't need to have an extra term to affirm. I don't use the term sex assigned at birth to me. That's just yeah. 
not signed. So, so they're all out to say, I, I'm, I'm very into, like, I'm very aware of certain language things. I'm like, no, I'm just not going to over that. This is a, a line where I would yeah. draw. Like, I'm not going to, yeah. and some people do that with pronouns and I can, yeah. I can understand what I think it from, like, so. and it is equivalent essentially to me. Like, yeah, that's, our, that's our own discernment. And like, I'm going to reach different people with that. And you're going to reach different people with your approach. Yeah. And like, what if we're not right or wrong? It's just different for different people. Yeah. Which that that alone upsets yeah. a whole subset of people. <laughs> but yeah. thank you so much for taking the time to just like hash through this stuff with me and answer questions that I've had for a really long time. Thanks for having me on. This has been fun. Yeah. This was awesome. All right. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Crappy Christian Podcast. And hey, by the way, if you super loved it, can you go leave a five-star review wherever you're listening? That'd be awesome. All right. See you next week.